1: Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life.
2: So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
3: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
4: On Tour is a production of iHeartRadio and Black Barrel Media. I'm your host, Brian Ray. On this show, we'll take you behind the scenes of the music business to give you the most raw and real tales you've likely never heard before. We'll share our wildest, most unbelievable, and yes, most embarrassing moments while on tour. Today, we sit down with my friend Spike Edney, keyboardist for the band Queen for 37 years. We touch on his early days with the Boomtown Rats and Duran Duran. He hit everything you want to know about Queen. Spike's crazy audition, or lack thereof, the heyday with Freddie Mercury, and what the band really did at after parties, which will definitely surprise you. We get a peek into the private life of Freddie and the evolution of Queen since his passing with Paul Rogers and now Adam Lambert. We rap with Spike's best no story, not from an audition, but from Fidel Castro and the most hysterical on-tour travel story ever. You'll get to hear how a war, chickens, black market gas, and sleeping in barns somehow all fit together, only in rock and roll. Here's my conversation with Spike Edney. Spike, it's a real treat to sit down with you for a chat today. You've been a major contributing force with all the bands you've been in. Did you make a conscious decision to be a sideman rather than a front man, or is that just how things worked out for you?
5: uh well, I'm afraid failure led me to becoming a, si- a side man um <laughs> Excellent. Like, like everybody i you know I started off with dreams. It all kicked off uh for my twelfth birthday in december nineteen sixty three when my mum took me to see the Beatles in my local town hall. And um, when I just saw what was coming off the stage, the power of the whole thing and the reaction that had with 2000 screaming girls and me, I just knew that that was gonna be something I wanted to aim for. And I did the thing that everybody did. I went home, I woodshedded, I practiced, I joined up with a local band. And then eventually I got into a band that already was kind of gigging around the scene in the late sixties. Uh, doing cover versions and stuff, and they could all play, and then the world opened up to me, and uh, so we started to play gigs and write songs mm-hmm. because we all wanted to be the next whatever it was going to be. Yeah, competition in that day, in those days, as it always is, was ferocious. Yeah, you know, just trying to get somebody to pay attention. Yeah, um and they always wanted you to be just like the hit that happened last week. Well, which of course we all know is nonsense you can't yeah. you don't want to be copying somebody else right you got to find your own path and so we did uh, for many years right the way through the 70s banging on the door writing songs getting closer and closer and closer and then one day we got <laughs> dragged into backing uh, american soul band because um in that those days there were a lot of american air force bases as a sort of hangover from the second world war sure And so they would bring over artists from america and of course if it was a invariably a soul act they wouldn't fly over a 10-piece band because it was just impractical Mm -hmm. they would bring over the artist and a musical director Mm -hmm. guitar player piano player whatever and then hire an english band (coughs) excuse me that had some grounding in soul music Mm -hmm. and had horns if you had if you had two horns you were shooing so all of a sudden, we were a backing band, but I didn't mind too much because it might, being a backing band to Benny King, yeah, that's pretty all, all right. Yeah. You know what Are I mean? you kidding me? Uh, Stand and by me and exactly. everything else, and and uh, then I'm more so with uh, a Motown artist called Edwin Starr. Sure, and I was a fan of his. I bought yeah. his records as Fantastic. a kid. Fantastic. So you know, all of a sudden, we're thrown into playing with icons, and we become. Um, their version of an American touring soul band with all the rules uh, that James Brown has and all the the moves on stage and learning all the signs and signals about what they mean mm. when they want to break it down, when they want to take it to mm-hmm. the bridge. All this stuff, mm-hmm. which we probably think is clichéd, was mm-hmm. actually very real and much fun. Mm. So, so having not managed to get our band noticed enough and our material noticed enough to create our own thing... Um, All of a sudden, the world of the Sideman became very attractive. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, because you're working constantly and there's money coming in.
5: There you go. Yeah. Basic requirement.
4: Very important. Well, let's jump forward to um, your time with Duran Duran, Boomtown Rats, and uh, everyone else that you played with through the 80s. Were you now decidedly a guitar player or a keyboard player by that
5: time? Well, so I moved to London, had nothing at all, and a mate of ours that we would met over the years had got himself a job as a tape operator in a recording studio in West End in Soho but it was owned by Tony Visconti.
4: Mm, Great producer. Yes
5: and um, Tony Visconti needed a horn section and my mate Andy uh, Duncan said oh I know these horn players they're cheap and they're quick and he called me and he said uh can you get over to the studio like in 30 minutes and i was actually living in the center of london at this point waiting to find work and i said damn right i can and i got two guys and we went there and uh, we did a session for the boomtown rats
4: fantastic
5: and he didn't fire us so That's amazing that was great and uh, one song turned into four that turns into going on tour We toured all around with them. Came to America as their horn section. Mm -hmm. That led um, one of the other engineers, and this engineer was called became a a producer, and his name was Colin Thurston. Mm -hmm. And he became the producer of Duran Duran. It was one of his first ever gigs. Mm. And Duran Duran's first single was called Planet Earth, and it was a massive hit straight away. I mean, they really took off because the way they looked and the timing, of course, is everything. Mm. And all of a sudden, they wanted to do a 12-inch version of mm-hmm. Planet Earth. And they wanted horns, because how do you extend a single to 12 inches? Trombones. There you go. One word. So um, we brought the horn section in, and we started faffing around. They had a couple of ideas. We had a couple of ideas. And they were all getting ready to head off from London to Paris. And they said, listen, we're doing um, our first European gig, and we're doing a showcase for the French record company. Um tomorrow night in Paris do you want to come and play these songs with us and we went fuck yeah you know this is brilliant I said great and we said so um, wow uh, what do we do are we coming with you now he said no we've got a five seater bus and we're going here's a hundred bucks see you there
4: (laughs) you'd hit the big time
5: and so so we, we ran home and got our toothbrushes and ran back to and get the ferry to get to Paris and we arrived the next day in the in the afternoon for the soundtrack and um they bust in a few of their fans from birmingham uh and it's the first time since the beatles i'd seen real hysteria i actually witnessed it from the stage and of course these fans were going crazy yeah absolutely crazy and
4: how long did you stay with duran durand no
5: i just did that little period Mm -hmm. um because they had already recorded their first album they recorded their second album And my mate, the sax player, did the solo on Rio. Mm. And that's when they really took off and Mm -hmm. he went with them. They didn't Mm -hmm. need both of us. They couldn't afford both of us. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to pay for both of us. Mm. And he went and I got left behind. And good job too, because while he was going off with them, I got the job at Queen. So... uh.
4: Oh man!
5: Not too, not too many complaints tell, from me.
4: Well, tell me about that story. How is it that you ended up with them? Is
5: at the beginning of the eighties, um, a club opened up in London called Stringfellows. Okay. And um, it was based around uh, this guy Peter Stringfellow, who had been a promoter in the sixties and a disco owner in the seventies, and in the north of England. And he opened what he wanted to be a kind of London Studio fifty four so one night stevie wonder walks in and another night andy williams walks in and, and and all these people um but when he opened i thought i could bluff my way into a bar gig here because yeah. i knew it was gonna be a disco nice and um so i phoned up and i said um is uh so and so there?" completely just taking a, a random name no no some a name of somebody okay. i knew from five years before all right keeping my fingers crossed he said oh yeah he's here somewhere i'm like fuck and um he came on and I said, it's me, Spike, you remember? Yeah, how's it going? Great, what are you up to? I said, just moved to London, just you know, checking it out. Thought I might come down. He said, wait a minute, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, what do you mean? I hadn't even got to, do you have a gig as a busboy or a barman? I have not got to that point. And he says, uh, you can play cocktail jazz on a piano, can't you? I said, of course I can no idea <laughs> lying complete pinocchio Woo. and um he said well um come in tomorrow and play and i went right what? what have you got a piano they said yeah we've got a white grand piano and nobody will play it and i went see you at one o'clock and i'm freaking out now because my history is in pop soul and, and nothing yeah it's not in jazz at all i mean i like to listen to it um so i call up the sax player the one that was you know, in and out with Duran. And I said, look, I'm crapping myself about going in to do this because I don't feel I have the chops. I certainly haven't got the experience. And I'm used to playing with other people. But do you want to come in and bluff some bollocks with me? And they said, yeah, okay. And uh, I said, look, come over to my place now. And let's just knock something up. And we knocked up, um, girl Ipanema. And, Gotta um, have that. And fly me to the moon. Okay,
4: yeah. Good start.
5: And, and um moaning or is it work song? I don't know. Yeah. Easy, you know, it's yeah. blues. Yeah. So So I said, That's enough. So we get there, and I said, So how's this gonna work? He said, Well, the boss, strength fellow, will be here in a minute. And he said, Um, why don't you go and get on the stage? And he said, And I'll give you the nod as he's walking in because the piano is right near the front door I said just do your thing mm-hmm. and uh, so what's that looking at each other waiting saying, for him to come in shitting ourselves completely Right, this is going to be the biggest bluff of all time you know Um uh, had no right to be there doing that and um, and he said and, and he turned around he said oh, no, I don't know you I said yeah we used to play in your club years ago and he said yeah great okay you start on Friday um, four hours a night see you then oh
4: four hours yeah
5: and we and I looked and and of course the money was like we we were so broke it wasn't that much but it seemed like a a pretty penny to us and and we rushed into uh, chapel music and there it was 100 cocktail hits thank you very much and we went home and learned like 10 and started playing and and I thought we have got to be uh, canny about this. So when we started playing, there's almost nobody in the club. So we played them all quite slow, and then we take a break, and then and then it starts to pick up. And so we played them all again, but much faster. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Excellent.
5: <laughs> and then uh, as each day went by, we learned ten more songs until eventually we had a, a repertoire proper set. Yeah. of cocktail bollocks you know so
4: amazing uh, what a great story i love that yep. so how did that lead to your meeting uh and ah, playing with okay. the guys in so,
5: so that we're there um five six nights a week and for and we were well established uh, doing the cocktail thing and um people used to roll in and come up and say hello and all of a sudden guy walks up and said spike knee i went, Fuck hell, yeah and hello man and, you know whatever we'll stop and have a drink um and I said, so last time I saw you, you were the lighting roadie for that failed band that never got anywhere. And I said, what have you been doing? He said, well, after that, he said, I went to work for David Essex. Do you know David Essex Sure, was? of course, yeah. Big star at the time. Yeah. And he said, uh, and then um, <clears throat> he said, I became drum roadie for David Essex. And he said, and then I left that two years ago and became drum roadie for Queen. Mm. And he said, and uh, this year I got promoted from drum ready to roger taylor's personal assistant or band ponce as they were mm. known you're a band ponce, if you're an assistant to a musician mm-hmm. i said well good for you great he said queen need a keyboard player for the next tour do you want to do it i went yeah sure great you know because that's how it goes right that's how that works yeah and he said yeah well i'll let you know i said you do that you know so he goes off about four months later he comes back in with trip caliph and um the sound manager uh, sound uh, engineer sorry and uh and he said well that tour's coming up Uh, do you want it i went yeah but you know this is not how this happens." said give me a cassette send me a cassette we'll send a cassette to this address and i thought oh that's going to be a problem because i've got cassettes of me playing trombone and cassettes of me playing fly me to the moon Uh oh (laughs) and i thought i don't none of this is going to be of any use right Whatsoever. Right. So instead I sent a cassette of a bunch of records I played on mm-hmm. without really saying anything. I thought mm-hmm. I just confused them. Um and I get the call and I said, Right, you can come over to um West London, Notting hill uh on Monday. I go over there and I walk in and it's a very imposing white Georgian townhouse. Mm-hmm. Lots of people minions running around gold records everywhere mm-hmm. and it's quite imposing and i'm thinking oh right well here are you yeah all oh, right upstairs first floor and i'm thinking oh, i know what's going to happen there's 200 people up there sat yes. waiting yeah i've been through a couple yeah. of those auditions where you're just right you know you're just like doctor's waiting room you're waiting yeah. for you. and you, and the people listening to the auditions are all bored mind out of their minds and yeah not and they've drunk, already heard 400 yeah and if, if they're not drunk then they're waiting for the drug dealer to turn Yeah, on, you know just yeah. To make, get them through and i thought oh this is horrible so i go upstairs and there's an office with the door open and i walk in and sit down and in walks jerry stickles i have no idea oh, who he jerry. is jerry uh, i have no idea who he is and I'm thinking, right, this is obviously the front office bit. And he's going to give me the third degree. And then I either get to go. There must be a studio upstairs, you know, the six floors or. them. But I've got to get past him first. He said, do you have a passport? I said, yes. He said, got it with you? He said, yes. He said, give it to me. Photocopied it. He said, do you have any objection to playing in South Africa? And uh, because the whole apartheid Ooh, thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Sun City. Yeah. Uh, I'm an out of work musician. I'd I'd play on fucking the moon if that's where they wanted to do a gig. Exactly. (laughs) And he said, Right, that's it then. And I said, All right. So I'm going up to the room of death. To go go play now, yes. And I thought, And I don't know any Queen songs. Yeah. And I'm, and so I've prepared nothing. And I thought, I'm going to have to bluff and learn this as we go because anything else I've ever done, uh, preparation is the key uh, in an audition. Sure. If you can walk in and play their shit straight away, they normally like that yes yeah uh, uh so they don't have to mess around yeah waiting for you to learn stuff they played in million no times. doubt about yeah. it so i'm terrified of this yeah and i thought well, here we go upstairs and he said right then um on monday uh be at heathrow at 10 o'clock and you'll fly out to munich and I, holy I went, shit what and i said am i not here to audition he said well you'll go up there um, on monday and you'll meet the band and you'll play with them and i said and what if they don't like me? He said, then on Tuesday, you'll fly back. <laughs>
4: and yeah, no pressure. No. 37 years with them already. Yeah.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh, my God.
4: so when you first heard queen when you first heard the name queen i mean they were huge right off the bat another band that made such a huge impact on music and culture but even more so for a british guy what was it like hearing uh the name queen was it in any way offensive or oh, the actual name? Uh, yeah. well,
5: I thought it was very uh, risque and quite brave.
4: Yeah, because I thought cheeky that.
5: Well, um, at that time, of course, it was glam rock and and the sort of the androgynous thing with Bowie and uh, and they were sort of uh, big hair, makeup, and tight trousers and whatever. And by calling themselves Queen, they were opening themselves up to ridicule i thought and attack but then i thought why you got balls to actually do that and um i i have to say that i wasn't bothered about them at all because i liked weather report and stevie wonder Mm -hmm. and the queen were as far away from that as musically as possible Mm -hmm. so nothing up until bohemian rhapsody so the first like three four albums was only of minor interest to me But my girlfriend at the time loved Radio Gaga. I hated that because of the drum machine. I thought, well, well, at least put some real fucking drums on it or something. Yeah, Um, And so I went into the whole thing. Of course I wanted the gig, Mm -hmm. who wouldn't? But um, was I musically intrigued or overruled by anything? No, I wasn't. I knew that their live versions consisted of a lot of power a lot of arrangement and a lot of Freddie running around captivating the audience. Sure, I mean you don't expect to hear multi-layered harmonies because right that two of them sang and Brian sang when he remembered to right and Dicky didn't sing, so you got two and a half vocalists going on, and you can't re- recreate that. And, and they
4: were a loud band <clears throat> too. Yeah, but. and
5: so what they did uh, was very wise. They, it was all smoke and mirrors. You know, don't worry about what you can't hear. Look at this, and yeah. Fred sure. sold it visually. Yeah. And, and they ran around a lot and they had smoke bombs going off. So it was all about diversion. I mean, very clever.
4: But did you see that as an opportunity to be able to offer via synthesizers where people may not understand as a keyboardist, you're playing strings, horns, percussion, perhaps a bit of odd background vocal that could be used here or there. Well,
5: I had to be very careful because uh, my predecessors had only played on a couple of tracks. Um, and often it was a case of keeping the piano going once Fred stood up because he would play the intro of a song and Mm -hmm. stand up so they would take over and become Fred too Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was the first role but then we had to play the new songs off the album at the time the works Mm. which was proper synthesizer parts Yeah, proper. Mm -hmm. the songs were based on synthesizers and so I got to play those and then during the course of that of course the first song that I really had to get grips with was Radio Gaga. Yeah. Which had a, quite a few elements in it and meant me I was multitasking during Yeah, that. sure. but what I did have to do was use um the vocoder just to sing the signature radio Yeah. And um once I, that was established I said to them you know that I can do this in other songs and fill out other things. Sure. So whatever came of you and me, I would sing that and play it on vocoder as well. And all of a sudden, Trip Kaliff has got more to play with in terms of song yeah, sure. bits that he can add to it. So little by little, I managed to put m- more useful bits and pieces in. And we would, I even once said to Roger, listen to this. And I played in the whole of the intro bohemian rhapsody on vocoder is this the real life yeah he said i like it he said but the others went, don't bother
4: <laughs> so
5: how did you guys do that pull that off live we never did it we never did that
4: um it would start with bling oh uh, sure yeah well that would get your applause right there it's there so recognizable but and it is it, a big production yes, bit
5: and yeah even until um we never did it until the last tour mm. i'm talking 2019 mm-hmm. was the first time we ever used the uh, introduction. And you're uh, kidding we, me! No, I did
4: not know that.
5: No, never been wow. used. And uh, we would and we would use the tape of them, but Adam was inserted live as Freddie. So you're getting all the BVs, but you get the lead vocal is Adam taking the place. And as soon as he goes to me, then I come in and, oh, and we take over. For, fantastic. First time it's ever been done, yeah. The technology really wasn't there. The quality of it wasn't there Sure. To do it, well,
4: so. you'd be going back to the master tapes and pulling everything and yeah. re-recording it so that you could yeah. trigger it yeah. so people well, understand I, I, how and that works.
5: Um, uh, there was um, a, one little period of time when the very end of the song, nothing really matters... I would trigger fred nothing really matters and paul rogers saying anyone can see then i would trigger fred nothing really matters then paul would finish it and it was quite good because fred i was triggering audio and video just for those one sentence and the last day of the right i hit nothing really matters Anyone can see. And then I was daydreaming and I hit the same one again. Nothing really (laughs) (laughs) matters. To me. (laughs) Fantastic. And the band looking at me and I'm saying
4: Yeah, and the audience is like What? (laughs) (laughs) The fans that up, yeah. But I don't think many people out there understand how much goes into a show like that. They just see the final product, Here it comes blasting out of the speakers live and exciting and there's well now Adam Lambert you know performing yeah. like a maniac as he does and uh, well it's just great to hear that behind the scenes stuff well, a lot goes yeah, into it
5: if, if you do your work right they don't they don't notice we keep our fingers crossed that nothing goes wrong but as long as you have insurance policy yeah it probably won't go wrong yeah it's when you rely on something and it, then you know that one day it will get you yeah and uh, i remember saying to my um we've been rolling along quite happily on tour and um and i was saying remind me do we have a spare keyboard and he said yeah we've got one over here in this trunk and i went and i said are you loading it up with the sound I was because every day i go to the sound check and i fiddle around with something and i might do bit here and bit there and tr-
4: always changing and updating things
5: yeah. i said do you update he yeah. Said, oh yeah after every sound check and he said i'd just come and fill the thing and Plug it in and fill it up I said, and um, what would happen if this failed? And I turned around and said to you, fuck, plan B, get the keyboard out. How long would it take to get me up and running? He said, oh, about nine and a half minutes. I went, nine and a half? (laughs) It has to be set up. At Madison Square Garden. Yeah,
4: it's not gonna work.
5: I said, and what am I gonna say to them when they go, hit it? And I'm going, say something for nine and a half minutes. I said, whoa, no, no, this cannot work. Yeah. Um, I said, so then we had to get to this thing where both keyboards are set up, both keyboards are identical, yeah, and the changeover is now four seconds, yeah. (laughs) And of course, we've never had to use it
4: Uh once you got it perfectly set up. Well, it's good to have it, but I sleep
5: better at night, yeah, I'm sure. Um, one of these days I will go (gasps) quick down to the other keyboard,
4: yeah, right. At what point did you um start taking over for Freddie on piano? Is I know that. As a front man, he was down front giving it all. And uh, you would then play his piano part. But was there a point at which you took over all the piano duties? Or No,
5: no, no. I would only ever carry on from him. And he did what right. he had always done. Okay. Like, we are the champions. He would have played the intro and the first verse up until the chorus mm-hmm. when he stands up. Mm-hmm. So that's where I come in. Um, and the same with... Um, no, I didn't play Bohemian Rhapsody till after he'd gone, um, because he always did the beginning and he, and he finished it off. Because it mm-hmm. was a, a, such a you know an, an anthemic song. Yeah, um, sure. And there were other songs. I mean, he let me join in. And my predecessor Fred Mandel had joined in playing piano, rock and roll piano on a crazy little thing called Love. Mm-hmm. Because, but live there never was. Originally, up until then, it was all guitar and the records guitar. There's no keyboard yeah. on that. Um, and because I could do a little bit of the Little Richard, you know, 8s mm-hmm. and 16s or whatever. Um, they said, oh, well, have some of that in France. Yeah, do that. And he said, actually, come and, come and play it on my piano. And so I would walk down to the front, at which point most people thought that I'd evaded security. And they were <laughs> waiting to see me bundled off the stage. And yeah. they where the fuck is this guy? You Who's know. that guy? Because yeah, most of the time you're sort of off to in yeah. the shadows kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd be playing and I'd do some rock and roll, and he'd come up and do it with me, and we'd do it together. Fantastic. And, he, and, he'd, and he'd fool around and gave him something else to play with, you know. Because we only did two tours together, because um, after the Kind of Magic tour that finished in 86 at Nebworth, we assumed that we would all be coming back together a couple of years down the line to do it all again. Mm-hmm. But it didn't happen. It wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. So it was only you know from eighty four to eighty six, two short years. Even though oh. it, it looms large. Yeah, sure. um Especially we because of the uh, live at Wembley, mm. um, and because they'd done live at Wembley, uh, which was in the July, they didn't film live at Nebworth, which was on August. Mm. They didn't bother because they thought they had it in the can, and that turned out to be the last show.
4: Oh my god and it wasn't filmed oh that's a, that's a little bit sad
5: I, it's more than a little bit sad and since then they filmed every single show yeah sure every because you never know what's yeah so, um, yeah
4: tell us a little bit about freddie what was he like was he shy some someone had told me that he was kind of shy which would you know of course betray his loud sort of um brash performing style was he a shy yes he guy? was
5: um he's very shy around people he didn't know so um, you had to be very uh, he was skittish in terms of you had to prove that you were a proper, reliable person yeah. and uh, not a hanger on or after something. And once right. you sort of were accepted, he was very relaxed and very open. And and there were two definite sides to him. There was his private Quiet off stage um, person, and there was the diva, yeah. And he could turn it on in a second, right, when he needed to. Um, but we really kind of bonded best because he was so famous by that time. After Live Aid, uh, their career went whoosh back mm. up. I mean, they always were big, but it kind of plateaued a bit. But Live Aid sent it through the roof, mm-hmm. and he couldn't go out in public mm-hmm. when we were on tour. Um, we used to go up to Club Fred. I mean, um, his suite became the hangout because he couldn't go out. So we came to him and we would, you know, you wouldn't have a backstage party very much. We would just pile back to the hotel. And Fred always had the presidential suite. And mm-hmm. uh, so he would invite everybody up. And there's always like, you know, everything's there. And, and the, his favorite thing to do was board games. He loved Scrabble. And he, at the time, the big game was Trivial Pursuit. Oh,
4: yes yeah he
5: loved that too and we that tour the um, 86 tour became non-stop trivial pursuit mm-hmm. mania and he said come on everybody get my, my room. We, got, we got to finish we didn't get finished last night we got to do it and we said oh fuck's sake okay would that
4: be just the band in those situations and, uh, or a few of the uh, okay. it,
5: it, it were predominantly just the band uh-huh. but then there might be some guests or friends that would turn up who were press gangs mm-hmm. but there was um, one occasion when towards the end of a japanese tour when everybody was there management uh all the band assistants or the security mm-hmm. and uh caliph and uh and we divided up the band versus management versus mm-hmm. crew and stuff mm-hmm. like that and that was hysterical lots of mm-hmm. um you would get people getting very irate and jumping up and down that's what i said no you didn't say that that wasn't your answer and yeah uh, hysterical lots yeah. of fun and that would have been a time to have a camera and a fly on the wall a documentary just to, just to see the normality of it yeah um, because playing Trivial Pursuit with my mates back in South London is just the same as playing with a bunch of megastars in the sure in the biggest hotel in Tokyo you know <gasps>
4: About what time, when was it that you started to recognize his, his health was failing? Um, was it when the tour didn't happen that you were hoping for, or were you made aware of it?
5: I was kind of made aware of it. Um, they were recording in London, and uh, Roger was going to be there, and he said, Pop by. And I hadn't seen Fred for probably a year and uh I was kind of taken aback. you haven't seen anybody for a while, and then you see them and then yeah. uh, and I'm thinking uh, oh well, there's nobody said anything, but uh, I had a feeling right there and then um and uh there was some kind of uh, the the band were very protective towards him, sure, and which is the right the mm-hmm. loyal Very so sure they would not say anything to anybody and um, and there were these rumours going around that he'd had some kind of um, problem with uh, blood pressure or something there was some some old mm-hmm. nonsense being spoken mm-hmm. that he needed to have something taken care of mm-hmm. and then we would be looking at doing dates and I remember mm-hmm. Jerry saying to me "Yeah, um, Fred's got an issue with his ankle or something uh, because he'd he'd had a, a problem with his knee previously and had to keep on having therapy to keep it uh, functioning mm-hmm. and it did function very well with the mm-hmm. therapist there, yeah. Every day, and he said, Yeah, he's, he's had some trouble with that old injury, and we're trying to figure out how, how we can do a tour without him having to run around. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was just talk. Um, and then, um, I was out doing a promo thing with Roger, uh, he did a couple of solo albums which I was involved in. Mm-hmm. And one night, um, he said to me, You know, he said, Well. We don't know how long Fred's going to ask. And we were drinking at a bar in the hotel, just me and him. And I went, really? I said, I thought it was hypertension and dodgy ankle. And he said, no, it's not. It's what you think it is. And I said, so are we looking at the end of this? And he said, yeah, and it could be quite soon. And and that really kind of shocked me, Mm. threw me back, because I'd been buying the dream. You know, Mm -hmm. out of politeness, I was believing everything they said. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, he only announced that he was really ill. Well, photographs came out, mm-hmm. and you could see that he was desperately ill. Mm-hmm. Um, the press were relentlessly hounding him. I felt mm-hmm. very sorry for him. And they published one picture, I think it was one of the red-top papers, saying, what's wrong with you, Fred? You know, mm-hmm. And he wouldn't say anything because he didn't feel it was anybody's business but his own, sure. which he was perfectly entitled to. Mm-hmm. And then I think he declared it virtually like the day he died mm. and he became public and um yeah, and I'd kind of come to terms with it uh, before that, but on my own I wasn't mm. you know it wasn't my job to tell anybody, it wasn't my secret to tell, so I didn't mm. you know,
4: I yeah, yeah, I hear you, jeez, what a great loss, but um, what a lovely gift, and how fortunate you were to be able to spend all that time with him an yeah. amazing artist yeah, yeah yeah
5: and um and when you think about it. Um, okay, so he passed in ninety two and here we are touring the world playing his music yeah. to an audience that weren't born the last time he was on stage. Exactly. How
4: remarkable. How,
5: I mean you could not write that and you could never if you put it into a movie, they wouldn't buy it. They say that'd right. oh, be ridiculous, you know, this is not gonna happen. So nobody's more surprised than me and I'm sure nobody's more delighted than them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that they can
4: do Madison Square Garden, you know. Well, I, w- I want to circle back for just a second. Like after after F- Freddie's passing, how long was it before you took up again uh, with Paul Rogers singing?
5: Well, there was a period of <clears throat> excuse me non Queen stuff because they felt that what can you do? How can you? Yeah. You cannot replace mm-hmm. somebody. Yeah. Like Freddie. So so from '92 to 2003, it's 11 years. Very quiet there for Where Queen didn't exist mm-hmm. really, apart from. Oh, there were a couple of award shows mm-hmm. that we would do and other people would guest as singers. Mm-hmm. So come around about 2003, there's a message came through. said, look, there's this TV show we think we're going to do. They want to give out some dodgy award uh, to, for We Will rocky and We Are the Champions. And um, Paul Rogers is going to be there singing all right now. But he doesn't have a band and you don't have a singer. Will you do it together? Now, Paul Rogers is an absolute hero to all of us. I mean, mm. the band Free yeah well, sure one of the great
4: um, one of the great one of the great bands ever, yeah. and
5: his performance in that band is um, you know stellar remarkable um, right. um, so we all love them and especially um, Brian and Freddie loved Free mm-hmm. and in fact there's uh, stories of when Brian wrote a song and gave it to Freddie and, and Freddie said you want me to sing like fucking Paul Rogers well I can't so you can just fuck off oh. and
4: <laughs> now the shoe's on the other foot <laughs> Yes. Now Paul's got to come and um, sound a bit like Freddie.
5: Yeah, well, so um, we, uh, hysterical moment. Um, We know how to play all right now. And he just had to learn the words to we will rock you and we are the champions, you know. So, I mean, there's not an awful lot of rehearsal needed with the quality of the players and the stuff and material that we're playing. So we actually basically didn't rehearse. We just turned up at the, to run through it at the studio, uh, at the TV studio. And, um, and we, Bang it through twice, and everybody knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no new arrangement or anything, mm-hmm. and we're done. And so but then you've got that horrible period of four hours that you've got to hang back around backstage before you go and do yes. it.
4: I know it well, yes.
5: Uh, oh, God, you know, that's, that's where drugs kick in and, yeah. Yeah, and abuse. The hurry Just up hang, and wait. Hanging yeah. about, you know. yeah. And hanging uh, about, And so we were all, uh, there were a couple of dressing rooms, and uh, <clears throat> at some point, I said to Paul, Do you want to have a quick go through? one more time and he said well how can we do that all the gears up there I said well no follow me and so said so we'll do this and we'll get the others in and we all gathered around in a changing room no bigger than where we are now and I got out a roll-up piano a roll-up rubber piano and I turned it on and I started to play we are the champions on this he broke his whole laughing he said I've never seen anything so ridiculous in all my life <laughs> but he sang it yeah. and we practiced it and we practiced the backing vocals and we all sang at the top of our voices because it's something that we had always done. Sure. Um, as our little gathering before going on stage, we get together and sing a little mm-hmm. bit. And, uh, and I was in the habit of taking this roll-up stupid piano around, which is almost Hilarious. impossible to play. And he said, this is the most surreal thing I've ever seen. And even now we talk about it when we go. He said, I shall, I shall never forget that moment. Um, but it was obvious that his singing ability... He was one of the few people who could actually sing the songs in the original keys, Mm -hmm. which was astounding, really, because you think of Paul Rogers, great blues rock singer, you don't think of him singing the sort of white Euro um, classical tradition that Fred had established. But he could, not all of them, and he knew which ones worked and which ones didn't. Sure. I won't be able to do that one very well. Let's pass on that one and let's right. do this one instead, right. which I can get to grips with. So, sure. so that's what we did, and we had a combination yeah. of great Paul Rogers songs from mm-hmm. you know Bad Company, and mm-hmm. and then my mate Jamie Moses came in on second guitar, so that we could do all the twin guitar things. Fantastic, and um, and Queen hits. I mean, I was in heaven, and and a few people didn't get it and were upset, but a lot of people did get it and they realised that he was doing a really tough job of jumping out of his comfort zone, which was blues, rock and soul, to sing this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, my hat goes off to him still, the fact that he had the range, but he also had the chutzpah to get up there and and deliver it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. What a singer. I mean, what a voice that guy has Uh, to shoot forward. um, I would imagine Adam Lambert uh, has been a blast of excitement and energy for the band how are things now with with Adam um, and do you guys think you'll be heading back out when it's safe
5: well um, I was in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago and I had lunch with him and, and I said how are you feeling And he said I am bored to the tits he said I can't wait to do something mm-hmm. I think everybody coming through this is bored I mean are you bored yet oh yeah I'm ready to go <laughs> um, and so we had a our European tour from 2020 got kicked through to 21, and it's now been kicked through to 22. So there is no real plan until May of 22, Mm -hmm. when we will fulfill the European tour. Whether anything happens between now and then is really in the lap of the gods, Mm -hmm. as they say.
4: Well, I hope we get to cross paths out there, that's for sure. Yeah, sure. So thanks so much, Spike, for coming out. Now it's time for the Encore. First question, what was the biggest or most impactful no you ever received?
5: Um, The day I got conned, into trying to organize a gig in cuba by um a swiss drug dealer um and and i wanted to do he said we want to put on a live aid style gig in cuba to open it up for tourism and he said and i said well the only place you can do that is in the square of the revolution the big square Mm -hmm. and they said well the only way you're going to do that is if you ask permission from fidel castro i said set it up i'll come he said no 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 you have to write a letter and i said oh and he doesn't speak english oh we'll write it for you here's a translation and once in a lifetime a man has a dream of bringing the music of the world to fantastic hotel, and all this flowery communism shit and i went i can't put my name to this and they said it won't happen unless you do i said so i signed it and gave it to him sat in the hotel for three days and it came back with no written on it <laughs>
4: That's a powerful no.
5: Fidel Castro <laughs> told me to fuck off in, in one word, pretty much.
4: <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so next one. They say tragedy plus time equals humor. What is the most embarrassing moment you've ever had on stage?
5: The day at a Nelson Mandela gig, um, I, I had the privilege to be a musical director for a bunch of shows for Nelson Mandela. And we did one up in the very far north of Norway, Tromso. And what is Nelson Mandela doing in Tromso? I don't know. Um, and we are playing with a, a, a world music artist called Jivan Gaspiran, who plays the Armenian nose flute. And now this is not a Monty Python joke. He really does. And he played the theme tune to Gladiator. Um, so the very enigmatic music. And, and, um, but his music has no form to it it just meanders and goes along. And then at a certain point, it changes. Now, being a Western musician, at playing music that doesn't have a beginning or an end or bar lines can be quite a challenge. Um, But I had his mate who spoke English standing at the end of my keyboard. And his job was to tell me when to change from D to G, because you're gonna be on D for a very long time and uh and so i'll be looking at him the band's looking at me and i'm looking at the, the mate and like he would go now and we would change right so far so good we could do that except that the my organizers come up and say you know that peter gabriel produced this record went, yeah so he has to play this i said well good luck with that because no, nobody's gonna know so we'll let him play alongside you so peter gabriel was standing next to me and i said right Do you know what D is, Pete? He goes. I know what D is. I said, you hold D, and when that bloke nods, changes to G. (laughs) Do you think you can manage that? And he looked at me with that. Are you fucking kidding me? Look, you know. And so we're there, and we're D, and and I'm holding a sort of ethereal string pad, and the tune's going through, and it's going through, and uh, matey boys' eyebrows start to go up,
4: and we thought, oh, you know, it's coming.
5: It's coming, and they're all looking at me, and my eyebrows go up. And then all of a sudden he goes, now, I said, G. And Pete changed to G and I changed to G, and the band changed to G, and the guy goes, no, I'm wrong, go back, go back. <laughs> <laughs> so we managed to get a train wreck out of two notes, right? So half of us are in G, half of us are in D and and I'm cracking up laughing. And eventually we get it all back together and, and it stops. And when it finishes, I said, hey Pete, in a minute we're gonna play um, with norway's biggest abba tribute band we're doing dancing queen do you want to stay on and he just looked at me and walked away that's
4: hilarious that's fantastic gee no go no back. go back okay last one here uh the non-glamorous part of your job as we've discussed <laughs> is the travel what's the craziest travel story you've had
5: okay um when i formed the sas band it was basically out of the remnants of brian may's touring band in 94 with cozy Powell, the wonderful cozy Powell, fantastic and, uh, drummer and yeah. Neil murray and we had and we played a uh, show down my hometown of portsmouth and uh, we called uh, uh, on uh, chris thompson uh, from man for man's earth band the man sure. who sang blinded by the light and mm-hmm. tony hadley from spandau ballet mm-hmm. and uh uh kiki d mm. and they turned up and we played a great night uh, we played a couple Of their songs, and they sang uh, their favorite cover versions, and we had a blast, it was fantastic. Mm. And three weeks later, Cozy Powell says, Do you want another gig? And I said, Oh, I hadn't thought that would ever be another gig, I thought we just done. He said, No, I've got a bloke, a mate, he wants me to do a gig, it's really important. Will you do it? And I said, I'll phone everybody up, yeah, where is it? And he said, Serbia, and I went, Right, and I said, Isn't there a war? And they said, Well, it's kind of all died down a bit, it should be okay.
2: <laughs>
4: oh, and no. I said,
5: Um. Wait a minute, um, can we even get there? Haven't they closed the airport because of, uh, you know, people dying? Because of war, basically. He said, Yes, they did. But my mate swears blind you'll be fine if we go. And I said, So how's this going to work then? he said, We'll have to go into um, Budapest and we'll get um, a bus up to uh, Belgrade. And I said, And what are we doing exactly? Are we playing to troops? He said, No, no, Concert for Peace, they're calling it. Some bloke called Dragon, I thought i'm going to play in the middle of a war zone for some guy called dragon and i said sure let's go so we fly into and and i've got tony hadley and chris thompson said yeah great you know adventure and they agreed to come we land in budapest and we come outside and there's a some a representative who's come down to meet us and Cozy says okay then so um where you know there's like 20 of us you know, crew, the band, and crew, and everything. And he said, uh, So, where's the bus? He said, Bus will be here in a minute. So Good. So, we're standing there. And we're sort of anxious to go. And the bus pulls up. And I thought, This feels a bit strange. And Cozy goes first, and I follow him, and we get on. And it's a real bus full of punters with goats and chickens who are all <laughs> going. Man, <up> fantastic. <laughs> and it's like a five hour journey in this It's bus, a city bus. It's a city
4: bus. <laughs> in Serbia.
5: And Cozy turns around and said, I don't think so. And we all come back off. He said, no, no, you've got to do better than that. Get a bus just for us. We can't be sent to people with goats and chickens. And uh, it just won't work. And so they said, well, we can't find another bus. We'll take you up by taxi. But we've got to wait for the cabs to come from Belgrade. So we sit there for six hours. We'd we'd arrived at the airport at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The taxis turn up at 10 o'clock in the evening. And basically what turns up are these guys who all look like bandidos driving these cars they don't speak any language except from serbian serbo croat whatever it is Mm -hmm. um they don't speak hungarian they can't even read the signs and there's five cars and we all bundle in and they tear off at about 100 miles an hour going up and we're going through bandit country and i'm suddenly beginning to feel that this could probably in badly, and the other thing is they don't have enough gas to get us to the gig. No, so we have to stop at the side of the road, and they do black market deals with people selling gas oh, to it And so we arrive at the gig at four o'clock in the morning. The punters have been in the gig since five o'clock the previous evening. They're all asleep, but they don't believe it's going to happen. And they and they said, "Please rush onto the stage to tell them that you're here." So me and Tony and Chris Thompson run onto the stage. Say, we're here yes it's great we're really here and everybody's waking up going on you know fantastic we play the gig finish at seven o'clock in the morning and um they say should we take you to the hotel cozy powell tony hadley chris thompson neil murray said no we want to go back to the airport and go now and they said okay so they put them back in these these death traps and they go off and in the middle of nowhere they run out of gas and they have to walk up a st- farmhouse and knock on the door and say, hey, you don't know me, but I'm a famous rock drummer. Can you give us some gas or can you put us up for the night? And they ended up sleeping in a barn while well, we stayed in the hotel. And, and then we got, got home the next day and we went, cozy, please never book a gig. Ever- <laughs> cozy. Oh, my Sorry. God. Yeah. So flying around in a private jet certainly has its... Um, advantages
4: compared to it's the dynamics of rock and roll spike it's the dynamic i'm
5: sorry it wasn't lightning but as you can understand there's a lot of uh, moving parts to that
4: this has been great spike thank you so much for coming out (laughs) and talking with me today thanks so much thanks a lot I'd like to thank everyone for listening and thank you to Spike for sharing your insane stories. On Tour is a production of iHeartRadio and Black Barrel Media. This show is produced by Mandy Wimmer with executive producer Noel Brown and I'm your host, Brian Ray. For more information about On Tour, visit our website, blackbarrelmedia.com. For behind-the-scenes photos from these interviews and to interact with us, visit our social media at OnTourPod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For more shows from iHeartRadio and Black Barrel Media, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
1: WORK.